Hi, I'm Ari Mizell, and this is the art of less doing. I'm going to teach you how to optimize, automate, and outsource everything in your life, including your health, in order to be more effective. I want you to stress less, free up as much time as possible, and do the things you want to do. Welcome back to the Less Doing Podcast, episode 151. Felix, how you doing? Great. How are you doing? I am doing great. I have uh, I have packing on my nose, surgical packing, because I literally just came back from the hospital. I had a uh, turbinate coblation done this morning. So um, for anybody who doesn't know what that is, which most people shouldn't, um, I basically have the, uh, the mucus production centers in my, my nose uh, swelled up, have been swelled up for a while, and it affected my sense of smell and, and breathing to some extent and snoring and all sorts of things. So um, I went in and had them... Coblated, which basically means they burn them to make them smaller. So I have a, I have a packing mm-hmm. on my nose. I had a, I had a, a general anesthesia this morning, so I had a nice little little nap, <laughs> and uh, and here we are. All right. Yeah, ready to hit it. So um, today's interview is with uh, Tucker Max, and Tucker Tucker is awesome. I actually got to I, I interviewed him, but then I actually got to really meet him and spend time with him at the Mastermind Talks in Napa. And his reputation does not do him justice, honestly, because his like one of his top books was was uh, called "Assholes Finish First, and I hope they serve beer in hell. And he's he's known for writing these uh, what he calls frat tire stories, which are basically like frat boy comedy stories about sex capades and just crazy things happening. Um, but he's actually a very, very good writer, and I think he's the only person to ever have three books on the New York Times bestseller list at the same time. Um, so he, he's been a number one wow. best-selling author three times. He uh, he sold three million copies of his books, and now he has a new company that makes it really easy for other people to write books, even if they're not good writers. So this is a is a really cool interview, and, and Tucker's awesome. Okay, cool. Well, yeah, I look forward to hearing it. Yeah, yeah, yeah it's it's good stuff. Um, okay, so but links that I want to share first of all. So this is this is a really funny one I want to start with, and it was this is what your finger length can tell can reveal about your personality. Okay, so there's a few, there's only a few different examples here, but if you take your hand and you close and you like put your fingers together and you close your hand, uh, if you notice, for example, uh, if you have a shorter ring finger than your index finger, okay, mm-hmm. so yeah, which I do. Uh, that those people are the self-confident, get-it-done types, which I think is really funny. Oh, that's pretty hilarious. Yeah. Um, if you uh, have a ring finger that is longer than your index finger, those people, those people yeah. tend to be charming and irresistible. Which I would agree, you are quite charming and irresistible. Well, that, sorry. So, yeah, absolutely. Well, no, that's an A. Yeah, that's the A type. That's the A, and then the C. But one, I think that's they're, they're just labeling those for convenience for this. Yeah, yeah, no, it's not like type yeah. A, type B. And then no, the, the, the third one is. Uh, <laughs> Definitely not in my case. Yeah, <laughs> people whose ring fingers and index fingers are the same length tend to be peace-loving, conflict-avoiding types. Well, you see, I'm that as well. You see, so, but yeah, there's a lot of there's some truth in. It, so, yeah, it's a weird thing, and I, I, you know, it's one of those things that could totally, but. Um, that someone would have to do a pretty big study to figure it out. I just thought that was kind of funny. So, uh, yeah. in terms of like quantified self stuff, if you want to look at that, that's a pretty in- simple thing to to try to figure out if you're one of those personalities. Um, so the next one is called clever layover. Did you get a chance to look at this one? Uh, I did. Yeah, I got to look at all the links. So, um, and this one is it's yeah, it's a brilliant idea. I mean, it's so simple. Uh, and and I mean, I think that the programming for this is very very easy. But essentially, if you think about any layover flight that you've ever taken, especially in the U.S., where like if you if you have to go through Delta's hub in Atlanta, I think it is, or Southwest hub in uh, Dallas, you know, so yeah. a lot of times when you fly, you end up going through the carrier's main hub and do a layover because uh, it, it's it's just more economical for them and they keep the routes that way. So what this does, the clever layover, is it actually will show you two round trip tickets that you can book. With that layover location in the uh, in the middle, so instead of booking like a flight from, let me think, instead of booking a flight from like New York to 
uh, Pitts. No, no, let me think. Okay, so instead of booking a flight from New York to Austin, and this is something I've done, where you mm-hmm. had where you have to do a layover in Chicago, what they would actually have you do is book a flight to Chicago round trip and a flight to Austin round trip. And then that layover would be the, the sort of stopover in the middle. And according to them, you can save quite a bit of money by doing this. So really? I, yeah, so I looked at some samples and the ones I came up with were like 30, 40% cheaper. It's crazy. Wow. So it, just to make clear, because that might not be clear enough, people will not look at this. Basically, uh, instead of, so you, basically I would have a trip, let's say, you know, on Monday to Chicago and I'd have a return ticket on Friday from Chicago. But in the middle there, uh, on that Monday, I get to Chicago, and then I have a separate flight that's going from Chicago to Austin, and I have a return from Austin to Chicago on Friday. And then I get back Friday, and I have my return ticket for the original flight. So it's, it's, so, a, so, so it, it's almost... So why would that be... Why? That's, that's so bizarre. That's isn't that so friggin' bizarre? I know. It's totally bizarre. Um, Very strange. I mean, I mean, that's like take back to you know, before computers to to save money. That's like well, that's the thing. Right? It's like well, on on the one hand. It's, I guess it's very inconvenient to have to figure this out, but of course this website is taking care of that problem for you. It's a lot easier uh, to be like, look, I just want to okay. go from you know, point A to point B, and whatever uh, is in the middle is not my problem. Yeah. But, uh, for example, they have, um, like on their website here, they, they give an example, which is from Atlanta to Paris. Okay, so from, from uh, Atlanta to Charles Girl Airport in Paris. But what they're doing, actually, is you're flying... Via wait, I can't see actually what this is saying. Um, maybe that's wrong. Well, uh, basically, what they say on the website is like a, a normal flight from Atlanta to Paris is eleven hundred dollars. Their price is eight hundred. Uh, a flight from uh, Boston to Sydney is two thousand dollars, and their price is fourteen hundred. So uh, yeah, well, really interesting. I guess if you have some flexibility, uh, this this is actually a really interesting option for people. Yeah. So pretty cool. Yeah. Uh, so now the next one is called uh, Blink, and this is a new, possibly very niche, on-demand service. But it's it's a great idea. It's basically um, vision testing, like on site. So mm-hmm. they will come to your home or your office, yeah. and, and they have this, this device. Looks very cool. Well, you know, it's just on the one hand, you could always be like, look, if you're too busy to do these things, like, sorry for you. But the truth is, is that a lot of these things are inconvenient to the point that people end up not scheduling them at all. And you really need to do that. Yeah. Yeah. So this is taking a headache out of, I'm sorry if anybody hears me like wiping my nose. I have um, things, blood and mucus coming out of my nose. Say no more. Say no more. Just just say you just had surgery. That's all you need to say. Exactly. Um, (laughs) Go on. So... Basically, uh, they have this really cool device that they've created specifically for this, and it will do vision chest tests for you. It is. This is great. I mean, this is right up. You know, getting your eyes scheduled and tested is is um, it's a huge headache. I mean, it's right up there with going to the dentist. And, exactly. Uh, this is such a clever idea. And it's twenty. I mean, it takes twenty minutes. So, yeah. um, and then yeah. what happens is, is that the 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 uh, whatever the data they get from you is actually remotely reviewed by an optometrist, and then you can get your your prescription for your lenses and everything. To get them for the lenses from them, or can you get the or can you get the frames anywhere else? Because that could no, you don't. Have, you, you, get you, them, you're, like, you're just getting the prescription. That's it. And then they. Oh, that's it. Okay. You can and get anywhere you, you want. Costco, wherever you want, and so or yeah. Warby Parker. You know, Warby yeah. Parker will let you do this all from home as well. Okay. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. Cool. Um, Okay, so the next one is, uh, this is just a very, very quick, it's not even an article, it's just a quick blog post on I Quit Sugar by this girl, Sarah Wilson, who I really like her stuff. And all it is is basically four, four ways to know your beef is grass-fed without having to like, specify grass-fed beef. So four, yeah. four very simple things. Um, the fat will be yellow. So, uh, or uh, when you notice with grain fed beef, you get a really thick layer of white fat. So the fat in a, uh, in grass fed beef is much more yellow. Uh, the meat is a little tougher because, uh, it's just the, it's basically the way it just naturally happens. Mm-hmm. Um, they, it has a stronger flavor. Now this one is interesting because I mean, I can, I feel like I can taste the difference between grass-fed beef and not, but I, I wouldn't necessarily say it's a stronger flavor. But I mean, okay, that's fine. Um, and then they say that there's less marbling, 
So you're going to get less like fat moving throughout, basically. And part of that is because the the grass-fed cows are going to have a lot more of the CLA, which is the, the congelated lipoic acid. And that's one of the things that in humans actually helps reduce belly fat, oddly enough. So mm. that's just one of those things. So those are four ways to know. Um, the next one is called Tunnel Mob. And this is a, a really funny service, but I, I can see how this would be useful. Basically, uh, you place a bounty, so you, you put a, uh, an amount of uh, money or, or whatever you're offering out there, and then what they say is the tunnelers go digging. And basically what they're doing is they are getting screenshots and information on really anything you want, but this is positioned to find out about your competition. In a legal manner? Oh, yeah, totally, totally legally. Wow. Uh, but basically what they're doing is that they're going to basically go through like every, every web page on a person's, like on a company's website or every page on an app or whatever, and they're going to get screenshots so you can have a really great overview very quickly of sort of what your competition is doing, like so you can position yourself better. Really? How clever. Yeah. It's an- oh, I just want to, I, I forgot to mention with the grass-fed beef thing. Yeah. Um, I noticed the flavor was noticeably different. And, uh, but would you say stronger? I would certainly say stronger. Okay. Certainly say stronger. And Claire wasn't, it really put Claire off, I think. She'd sort of, I think it just made her wonder whether the meat was, had like gone bad. Because I mean, she's naturally worried about that. But, um, and I, I really liked it. I mean, it just tasted more like a sort of T-bone steak, you know, to me. Yeah, no, that's, um, that's interesting. But yeah, notice, noticeably different in terms of taste. They're noticeably stronger. Anyway, sorry, carry on. Gotcha. Back to the um, to the other one. Yeah, yeah. So there's two more yeah. links. One is called DocSend, yeah. and um, this is this is not a newish kind of. Story. I mean, it's it's got some elements here that I really like. One of which there's lots of services like Hello Sign, Sign Now, where you can send documents for people to sign and even track if they signed it. But this actually takes it to a much more granular level, and you can get analytics on documents, which is really fascinating. Um, so not only how often the document was viewed, but how long the person viewed it for, um, and even like what parts of the document they're able to see or not, and what parts they've oh, read okay. and not. Yeah. And what kind of documents would, would, would this be used for? Well, I mean, you can use it obviously for like legal documents you want to have signed, but also sales proposals. So okay. what I gather from this is that, for instance, you could send somebody a sales proposal, and if you're noticing that people are only reading halfway down the page and then saying, like, I'm out of here, I don't want to do mm. this, that's yeah. actually really good information. Yeah, right, right. So that's pretty cool. Um, and then the last one I want to mention, I know you have a couple of links, Felix, is called transformme.io. And this, this is a really specific use case, but I know that there's going to be some people listening that, that can use this. So what you mm-hmm. do is... This seems like it's very much for programmers, but you, this is really cool. So you can take a list uh, of any kind of information. The first one that they give is a bunch of soccer players. So it'll say it says like three comma Roberto Carlos comma soccer comma Brazil. The next line is thirty five comma Michael Jordan comma baseball comma USA. And then what you do is you write in plain language. You mean. A bunch of sports players just do it. Well, in this in yeah. this case, yeah. Um, but then yeah, they, they have other yeah. ones. They have yeah. it. And, and then it and then it formulates it into um, whatever, however you want that list to appear. It's exactly. Really, I was really blown. Now the cool thing, I mean, when I was using, um, wife enjoys a good challenge, and she's very good at finding out how to you know um, do fancy stuff in it. And she did figure out how to do this kind of thing. But the cool thing about this is that you can formulate it any way. You want if you want, you know, a load of brackets, like a programmer would need. You can do that, or if you want the whole thing, all of the commas removed. That's the kind of thing you can do it, and it will intelligently do it. Exactly, and, and it's natural language uh, too. It's really clever, and it's just free. It's just a website, right? Yeah, yeah, and it's, it's just, and, and it's totally natural language, which is what's really interesting. Yeah, so you just yeah. write it the way you want it, and then they do it. Yeah, I was very this because I frequently need this kind of thing, and it kind of takes me to uh, to the the uh, the links that I wanted to. Well, not links, but things I wanted to talk about for the. So, so shall I go straight onto that? Please, yeah. Mm, yeah. So, frankly, I need to do this kind of thing, and what I will do is, um, so for example, the most typical use for me is notes in um, when I'm picture, right, composing music to picture, which is what I do. So I need to have a list of all of the events in that particular scene. 
and and what and at what times that they appear. And at the moment, I just I will take a screenshot of those events because they all I make the event in the composer that I use, and then I take a mail it to um, to fancy hands and have them do it. But often I want that done really quickly, and I actually would prefer to be able to do it myself. So firstly, you know of anything that will do really a PDF pen, and I guess I could learn how to do it better. Like, what I really want is the, um, you know how I have, a, for example, I have a screenshot of, of what looks like a spreadsheet, and to get, I really want yeah, the OCR come out in those columns, the same columns that it is, not as raw, um, completely raw text. So I'm looking for something like that, and I tried using this, the Transformio link, but um, it can't do that, because that's a little more complicated. So, so that's one thing. So one website that might allow you to do that actually is called import, yeah. import.io. Oh, Yeah. Oh, yeah, okay. and maybe I'll do it automatically. Um, but like sometimes for that kind of thing, honestly, I would just have it. I would send it over to Fancy Hands and have them do it. Yeah, it's just that. It's uh, yeah. You know what I'm actually going to do? I'm going to actually email Fancy Hands and and ask for someone who's who's really good at OCR, which most likely they have somewhere. Well, but the other thing you can for, do, you know, how they would do it. That's also something that would be great for like Mechanical Turk, for instance. You know, Amazon Mechanical Turk, where they're charging you like three cents per line kind of thing to do it. And it's oh, really? done really well, yeah. Amazon Mechanical Turk. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Amazon Mechanical Turk is great for that kind of stuff. That's very like where it can be broken up into very small pieces, and um, it doesn't necessarily require a real skill set. And it's it's to the it's so easy to do that you could actually have it uh, quality controlled. So you you can say that you want like three people to do the same line to make sure that it's done right. Oh my word! Yeah. Ah. Okay, that's cool. Um, it also leads me on to, this is all OCR related pretty much. Um, and then we'll just finish up actually. I'll save the other ones for the next episode. Um, how, when you have, when you want to get someone's contact information from their email signature, how do you do it? Um, I just use EverContact, you know, which uh, used to be write that name. So okay. basically, if you, if you respond to them, then uh, if they write to you and you respond to them, then EverContact is going to add it into your, into your Sorry, thing. sorry, can you, I, I don't know, EverContact, can you give it a full no, explanation? Yeah, but you, write that name, remember yeah. write that name? No. Oh, okay. Uh, so, I, I do, I know the name. So EverContact is, the, is their new name. So basically, yeah, for people who haven't heard of this before, you, it's a plug-in for Gmail, and uh, you basically, it, it auto Adds and auto updates people's information. So if you have a conversation back and forth, uh, like I think it's just two times. So if somebody writes to you and you write back, or you write to someone and they write back, it's it's basically verified that you know this is someone you want to be in contact with, maybe, and it will uh, automatically add that person's information to your contacts. And if they change their phone number, change their email address, change anything, it will actually update that information going forward. It's really cool. Oh, that's cool. But the problem with that is that it does require a subscription, doesn't it? Um, I think it's free for a certain amount. A certain amount of uh, of like contacts back and forth. I'm not sure. Right. Yeah. I'm pretty sure it requires a subscription. Okay, too. you might be right. <laughs> you might be right. I'm just trying to. I mean, I went through my um, subscriptions recently, and it was like 170 dollars a month worth of these kinds of things. And I'm just got to keep that down. Um, I will check into that. So that's cool. But anyway, that's great to know. So thank you. So you use ever contact. Um, okay. Well, um, well, great. Cool. That's that's all I have. I yeah. know you're, you've got to run. So um, so let's let's do this. Uh, these other links on the next. Okay. That's all you have, right? Yeah. yeah. All right. Yeah. Well, well, thanks, Felix, and uh, thanks everybody for listening in. And uh, we will be back soon. Awesome. Okay. Talk then. And now for Feature Interview. So now I'm speaking with Tucker Max, who is the CEO of Book in a Box and also the a three times New York Times, I'm sorry, three time number one New York Times bestselling author. Uh, 
and also relatively new father. So we're going to touch on a number of different topics today. So Tucker, thank you for of course, you. yeah. Um, so first of all, let's just talk about. Actually, I want to talk about book in a box first. So, so because I feel like that's sort of a culmination of a l- number of things that you've been through, especially as a three times number one New York Times bestselling author. So, how, how what is book in a box, and how did it come about? So basically, uh, for the last ten years, ever since I became an author, and you tell people you're an author, and the number one question that you get is, uh, "Oh, how do I become an author?" or "Oh, I want to write a book." Uh, you know, <laughs> how do I do it? Whatever, right? Right. And and I feel kind of stupid because people have been asking me this question for, I mean, literally ten years, and. Um, and of course, you know, it used to be that my answer was uh, some combination of hard work and blah, blah, blah. And then, of course, everyone rolls their eyes and, or, or their eyes glaze over because no one wants to actually do any work. They just want a book, right? Right. And, and so uh, last year uh, at this entrepreneur dinner, I got that question again. And I gave my standard answer about hard work and determination and you know, blah, blah, blah. And uh, the woman stopped, there was a woman who asked me and she stopped me and she's this very, very successful entrepreneur who's done a lot of things. And she's like, look, you know, I solve problems at my job. Can you solve my problem or can you just lecture me about hard work? And I was like, okay, all right. You know, it, it was funny because she was, uh, this woman especially was, was definitely, she was right. So I went home and I thought about it. Like, how can I, she had a great idea for a book she, uh, but she wasn't, she didn't like writing and she doesn't have any time to sit down and write because she's too busy running a company and solving real problems. And so I thought, all right, how can I turn her ideas into a book? And me and another uh, friend of mine basically just kind of devised this process where, where we would, uh, uh, interview her and then take like that recorded, um, interview and then edit it into a book. And long, long story short, we ended up developing a process where uh, a person can turn their ideas into a book by spending only about 12 hours on the phone with us, and then we do everything else. And so we've, um, you know, we started last year, and we're now 50 uh, or 60 clients in, doing doing great. So, and this is amazing to me because actually, it's one of the things I I talk about with people when I when I push them to do like a podcast or something. And I, and I don't, I don't have a podcasting uh, service or anything. I mean, I just, I have a podcast and, and I have this belief that most people who are, you know, interesting and intelligent have something to share with the world. And a lot of them are just blocked from doing it. You know, like personally, I don't consider myself to be a particularly a good writer. Well, no, I'm not a good writer. Um, I have, my book came out uh, last year and the way that I was finally able to get it done was that I basically took one of my, courses my classes that i taught and was and videoed it and then i basically gave that to a go i mean not basically i gave it to a ghostwriter and said look you have to help me turn this into a manuscript and me speaking in front of a group of people was the best way for me to get that information out of me but if i were to sit down and write the book it, if it happened at all it would have been terrible so it, i think it's a really important service you're offering right it, that's almost exactly what we do uh, it's not ghostwriting ghostwriting is a little bit different in that, like, ghostwriters tend to be very expensive. Like, our service co- starts at about $15,000. Ghostwriters, a decent ghostwriter uh, is going to start at about forty or fifty grand and go up from there. And generally, like, a ghostwriter is someone who's like, uh, you, you'll go to them and say, Give, you know, I want, I'm a CEO of a sales company. I need a sales book. Go write it for me, right? Whereas we don't really do that. We don't give you ideas. We translate, we turn your ideas into a book. But yeah, you're exactly right. Um, I think there are a lot of really smart, really successful people out there who have a lot to share with the world, but they don't because uh, there are either social barriers to them uh, writing or there are structural barriers. Because here's the problem, man. Writing, a lot of people don't think about this. Um, it took me it took me actually 10 years, if you think about it, to really divorce the process of writing from the process of communicating information through books. Writing is a very distinct cognitive process and a very distinct skill that is totally separate from creating a book. Now, they can overlap and they can be the same thing, but there are a lot of people who are really truly great writers, meaning that they they construct sentences well and they do, you know, like all the all the sort of constituent skills of writing very well, but they have nothing to say. You know, I mean, that's that's like the New Yorker is essentially all all these great writers that really have nothing to say. Um, whereas 
there are a lot of people who are really smart and do really amazing things and, and have a lot to teach the world, but they are either too afraid or too intimidated by the writing process, don't have writing skills, or don't have the time to do that. And so I didn't really even realize, you know, like you come out of, out of writing, you get kind of this, um, this elitist, the, the, the writing sort of publishing industry is so elitist and it's so, um, it's so exclusionary and it doesn't have to be. And I didn't even realize, like I hate that part of the industry, but I had the same ideas in my head. You know, when I was lecturing this woman about hard work, I mean, think about how foolish this is. This woman's created a company that's done far more than anything I've ever done, and I'm lecturing her about hard work because that's what I think writing has to be, and it doesn't. It doesn't at all. And and really, I you know, I think of what we do this way. Uh, photography used to be about lenses and dark rooms and all and all this equipment, and now the best photographers in the world are Russian kids with iPhones and Instagram. Right. And that's it, you know? And it's fantastic. And the world has opened up because of that. Uh, I see us as doing the same thing to books and writing that Instagram and iPhones have done to photography. That, that's, a, that's actually a really cool way to explain it, too, you know, when you're, when you're trying to present what the idea is. So now, writing it is obviously one part of it, but getting people to read it is another. And so is that sort of part of this package? Well, so yeah, yes and no. Um, we, <laughs> the way that we construct books, we start with the author's goal at the beginning. So like, uh, I'm actually, you're going to see, we're both speaking at the same mastermind event in Napa that we were just talking about. Um, I explain this, pro- I'm going to explain this process step by step so that people, because listen, there's no magic to what we do. I mean, we, we figured out a lot of really cool things and put a lot of things together that weren't together before. But there's no individual step of this that's some crazy proprietary process that we've invented out of whole cloth. And so I'm going to explain exactly what we do, how we do it. We even have a book coming out that's going to explain this. Our process is very expensive, but people can do this at home uh, for very cheap. Like the reason you pay us 15 grand is because you're buying our time and our expertise. Um, but if you if you have plenty of time and no money, then then we can teach you how to do this. And um, and so what we're gonna do, or, or what I do is I, I kind of teach people how to walk through this. And the first thing that we start with is the author's goal, right? Because people people a lot of times will will start with a book and be like, all right, I'm gonna write a book, and then they have some idea in their head for a book, and they then after they're finished with all this work for the book, then they think, okay, I guess I need to market it now which is the complete opposite wrong way you should be going about it. You need to start with the goal in mind first, which is really the same way to start with a company too. But, um, and you need to understand, okay, what, what, what purpose do I want? What purpose am I creating this book for? What is the ultimate goal? Because no one creates a book just to create a book. There is a, something you want this book uh, to do or some result you want this book to create. So we actually start there. That's literally the first question. And once we understand the author's uh, sort of ultimate goal, then the second question is, uh, how does this book reach an audience that could get you that goal? And then the third question is, what is the book about? That's interesting. Okay, so that's really interesting, too, because when I first... So (laughs) I did this in a very half-cocked way, honestly, in my opinion, in, in retrospect. And I'm working on my second book now, which is one of the reasons that we initially got connected anyway. Uh, but basically, I started less doing, I don't know, five years ago as a blog. And I, literally, like, I'd written 15% of the content of the whole system. And I was like, I want to do a book. So I was, like, putting the, the manuscript together. And, cre- and I hadn't even created the whole thing yet. And then I started teaching and uh, sort of, like, reverse engineered it. But originally, it was that. It was like, I just want to do a book because like, I feel like I should do a book. And that was stupid of me. It was really, it was silly. It didn't make any sense. Uh, and and then as I get into it, you see the other kind of goals that people might have. Like, why do you want to do a book? Uh, because I want to be a New York Times bestselling author, which is, which a number of people have said to me, they're like, well, okay, you can buy that if you want, or you know, you can create a book that's actually going to get, the, like, there's a number of ways to even get to that. So it, yep. it's, it's a really good point, right? Like, you're working at it backwards almost. Yeah, that, that's, it's, it's not just a good point. It is the point. And most people fail to understand this because books occupy this weird cultural sort of hierarchy, uh, this weird space, and they, they have an immense amount of influence 
uh, on certain parts of our uh, culture and our society, and they have immensely high status, even though, uh, like, it's not obvious why or how they should have those. It's just sort of a cultural artifact. And so, like, people who are normally very smart and have their shit together uh, sort of empirically in any other uh, field, somehow, like, they go crazy when it comes to books, and they don't think about it systematically. So that's a lot of what our process is, is making otherwise very systematic, very intelligent people apply that same process to books. And what we inevitably end up finding is that um, most people uh, most people want books for uh, sort of not... Part of the reason they want the book is an ego status credibility reason, which I think is perfectly valid, but uh, most people think that's not a valid reason to have a book, and they're not allowed to think that. So it's kind of funny. Like A huge part of our onboarding process with authors is um, getting them to open up and understand what their actual motivations are, because if you're, if you're, once we know your actual motivation then it's really easy for us to help you achieve that. You know, like if, if all you, if really all you care about is getting the um, word out about some idea or some message, then there's a very specific strategy that works really well to spread ideas. If what you really care about is selling books and making money, then there's a different strategy you need to take, which is fundamentally different. And if what you really care about is establishing your authority and your credibility in a field and, and raising your personal status uh, as a speaker or consultant or any number of other thinker, then there's a, a third strategy you need to take. The problem comes when people come in and they, um, they aren't honest with themselves or they aren't honest with us about what their goals actually are, then they end up getting a result that they're unhappy with. But... That's part of like what's really cool about our process is we 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 figured this out very early, um, and so uh, the way that we ask questions and the way that we onboard people is specifically designed to get their real motivation out, um, and, and so that way we can help them achieve their real goal. You know, does that make sense? You know, totally, it does. And actually, it's a good segue to the next thing I wanted to talk to you about, which is sort of how you got started, and you know what it, it it's so it, it's really cool to me, honestly, to see how you started out with your blog and your, and your books and, and to sort of what you're doing now, how did, what was your goal and your motivation with your first? <laughs> what, was, what was, what was my stated goal or what was my real goal that I didn't understand until later? Uh, your real goal. What was your real goal? Well, uh, so the, the honest question to that is not one that, uh, is super pleasant for me to talk about. Um, but I'll, I'll, I'll tell you, uh, what's, what's so podcast or go for it. <laughs> right. Right. Um, so basically, I started. Um, I started two thousand one, two thousand two. Like this is before G. Uh, this is like when GeoCities was still a thing. This is before MySpace or Facebook or anything like that. And um, and, and I thought my uh, goal was to become a writer and and to you know make a living writing and to write funny stuff. And and I did enjoy doing that. And I did care about that. Um, and, and obviously, like if, if you, if I didn't enjoy writing and enjoy, I didn't enjoy making people laugh, then I would not have persevered at that, which is an important sort of point to make. But um, one of the life lessons that it took me a long time to learn, I wish I had learned, I wish I had the guts to face earlier because it would have made my life a lot easier, is that the real reason I was um, going into that field was to become famous and popular to compensate for whatever psychological issues I had at the time. Um, and, and like uh, most people, listen, that's true for almost anyone who goes into the entertainment business um, as opposed to any number of other businesses is uh, they want to be famous for a reason. It usually ties back to some deficiency uh, or issue that they're dealing with and they're using that business and that, and that attention to deal with it sort of indirectly. And I, I I include myself 100% in that group. Like I, I don't get any any pass uh, on that. I was the same way, and I didn't understand that. And if I had, I think I would have made a lot of different decisions and a lot of smarter decisions. And I would have. Um, I may not have even picked that career, to be honest. Uh, I may have picked something in entrepreneurship, um, but uh, you know, so more, more like Silicon Valley entrepreneurship as opposed to doing what I was doing. 
But even if I had kept in the entertainment business, I would have just gone about it in a way that was a lot smarter and a lot more, um, I think, healthy, you know, than what I did. Well, yeah, and, and, and you know, in terms of being more healthy, I mean, you know, the, on, your, on TuckerMax.com, you basically you start off with, my name is Tucker Max, and I'm an asshole. So it's, it's, it's an interesting sort of position to put yourself in trying to become famous. Right? Yeah, yeah, see, that, no, actually, that's not what I'm talking about. So um, the, 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 the position, I, I know what you're thinking of, but that's not exactly what I'm thinking of. The, posi- the, the, the positioning I took with my stories and with whatever is totally fine. Um, look, you could make an, a lot of people actually have made the argument that, that the stuff I wrote, if I had draped myself in literary pretension and acted like Charles Bukowski, that the exact same stories I wrote would have been, um, uh, embraced by the literary community and treated totally differently. Um, I probably wouldn't have sold as many books, but which was really what I cared about. So like, I, I, I like the positioning I took. I don't mean that at all. I mean, like the way I dealt with marketing, the way I dealt with my business, the way I dealt with people around myself, you know, like, listen, if your goal, it boils down to this. Um, I didn't really have great parents growing up and, uh, uh, you know, they weren't evil people. Like no one, uh, you know, stuck anything up my butt or, you know, (laughs) hit me or anything like that. They weren't, it wasn't like the obvious easy narrative of uh, abuse. It was, my parents were just uh, uh, very bad at being parents. Um, they, they were, I was basically a pretty lonely, neglected kid, at least in terms of parental care. I mean, I had a bunch of friends and stuff, but like in terms of, uh, of family stuff, I didn't really have a lot of that. And so there's a lot of ways for uh, a kid to react to that trauma. Um, and the way I did is to sort of um, be super mo- motivated to succeed and not just succeed, but succeed publicly, you know, and that's sort of like, uh, obviously all this was going on is on an unconscious level. Like I didn't really realize this stuff until my thirties, um, uh, especially mid thirties. But, uh, you know, it's one of those things where it's like, look, I- I'm going to be famous. If I become famous, then my dad and my mom have to, uh, Pay attention, you know, even if that's not what I cared about consciously, it, it, it was driving me unconsciously. I mean, you can look at most, most famous pe- people who went out with the intention to become famous. Um, something like that uh, is usually driving them. And uh, not always, of course, but usually if your direct primary goal is fame, that's usually what's driving is, is something like that. And so that, that was... I mean, that was true for me, and I didn't realize it is, is really the main problem. And so a lot of decisions I made, if you don't realize what your main motivation is, then you're going to end up making a lot of wrong decisions that lead to weird results that aren't beneficial for you because you don't understand what's motivating you. That's, that's, very, that's interesting. That's, that's very deep. Uh, look at it, honestly. And I, I feel like a lot of people sort of come out of uh, parent, a parental situation that they're not completely satisfied with, and then they end up manifesting that in different ways. In fact, uh, yep. one of the really interesting statistics that I always used to quote when I was younger was that 75% of young entrepreneurs come from households where the mother is uh, overbearing and the father is either physically or emotionally absent. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah, in a, a really weird kind of way. Yeah, it does. Well, not, a, I mean, but yes, it does. And Sometimes these things manifest themselves in really great motivation. Sometimes it, you know, it can be self-sabotage. So obviously yours ended up being a really good motivation. And what I also, I, I appreciate you clarifying, but what I meant too when I was quoting you from the website is uh, the, the path you took is, is interesting to me because I think that the stuff that you wrote about or that you wrote is actually is really well written. The subject matter is not something necessarily that you would think would be paired with very good writing quality if you, and I don't mean I mean that with complete respect I think you know what I'm talking about yeah, yeah of course yeah uh-huh. so it, it's how did you how did you become a, a good writer because I, I think you are uh, you know what's funny is like um, he, so there's two definitions of good writing I, I think most people or people who like to think of themselves as book people or literary people would argue with you and say no Tucker Max is not a good writer and their argument will boil down to, I don't use a lot of fancy words, and I'm, not, uh, and I'm very easy to understand. 
right? I mean, that's what literary pretension is, is, you know, we, these are people who celebrate, you know, someone like uh, David Foster Wallace or Jonathan uh, Franzen or whatever, people who are intentionally uh, obtuse or, or uh, obscuring or, or very difficult to read. That's how they signal status in that group. Um, whereas uh, the other way to say someone's a good writer is to say that their writing is very compelling, meaning that, like, you like reading it and reading it, uh, reading a little bit, right, it makes you want to read more and you can understand it and it engages you for what it is. In that regard, I would say, uh, I would agree that I am a really good writer and the best evidence is the fact that millions of people paid money to hear me tell stories that, like, I mean, everyone has stories of getting drunk and falling down and hooking up, but I'm the only one who became a millionaire by writing those stories down, you know? And so, so by that measure, I think uh, what you said is obviously correct. But, like, you have, to under, you, you have to start with that sort of understanding is what do you mean by good writer? Because in the writing, literary, publishing, book communities, good writer means fancy and difficult to understand and intentionally obtuse and uh, something that has uh, almost always means uh, no commercial success. Oh, oh, unless it's the right kind of commercial success. And I mean right in quotes. Whereas for most, I think the real definition or the better definition of good writing is does this writing engage people and help them with achieve some goal that they want to achieve, right? So with my books, the goal was to laugh and to be entertained. And my books did that. Uh, with your, your, goal, your books, the goal is to learn, you know, to learn how to do more with less time and et cetera, et cetera, right? And so like... That's the type of books that we try to do a book in a box, uh, obviously are not literary novels, but uh, sort of nonfiction and stuff that actually achieves uh, a real goal. And by that definition, I think it's actually easy for most people to be good writers. If you, if you think of good writing as helping people achieve a goal that they want to achieve, you know, then most people can be good writers if, you're, if you have good information to pass on and you do it in a way that the reader can engage with that's clear and simple and precise. Sure, no, and, and the compelling argument makes a lot of sense too because it, what, what you're writing makes me, like well, the blog at least, what the blog and, and uh, Hilarity and Susan stuff makes me think of is in the movie Private Parts about, um, uh, about Howard Stern. How, like, uh, have you seen it? Yeah, of course. Yeah, okay, so the, the radio manager comes over and with, the, with the staff and he's like, you know, it's, we're doing amazing. The show's doing great. Half the people love him and half the people hate him. But everybody, the, the reason that they give for why they keep listening is that they want to see what he'll do next. Yeah. And that's the yeah. case. It's like, oh, this is like, you know, the, this is ridiculous, the story. Or like, this, there's no way this happened, but I got to keep reading. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Right. Exactly. So uh, that's, that seems like a pretty good formula for success. So is there, I mean, in your opinion, at least in, for your books, being a three times number one New York Times bestselling author, do you think that there was some sort of gaming to it at all, or do you think it's just no, it's just really good? No. It's just really good. No, 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 yeah. Uh, so it's funny because I helped Ryan Holiday start um, his book marketing firm, and then I, you know, I, I run a separate company that we, we don't really do a whole lot of book marketing and book in a box for the authors that that come through. We have like some basic packages to help them um, sort of achieve their book's goal. We don't really call it book marketing, but I know a lot about that field, and I'm very good at it. And and the the supreme irony is is that I did very little of it for my books because because anyone anyone who knows book marketing will tell you this: the best marketing is writing a great book. And and by writing a great book, <clears throat> I don't mean a book that that you know the New York Times Book Review thinks is well written. I mean a book that helps people, uh, uh, it gives people what they want, or helps people uh, meet their needs. So, like, my, if your book is entertainment and humor like mine is, it needs to make people laugh, right? That's a great book. My, pe my book made people laugh. It's sold <clears throat> because people read it, laughed, and told their friends. Uh, if your book is about how to make someone a better entrepreneur, it needs to have great advice that makes them a better entrepreneur, and then people will read it and tell their friends. Because right now, discovery is a fundamentally broken process for books, and there's really no way... To there's no systematic go-to way to get uh, sort of attention for a book anymore. Um, I think that the discovery sort of uh, issue will eventually be solved the way it's been solved for pictures or for 
uh, news about your friends or whatever. It's not been solved for books. Um, but the, the good news is that means the good stuff is going to sell. The bad news is the only way to start that, to really sort of uh, do that process is do a good book. You can't buy your way to success anymore. You can buy your way onto the New York Times bestseller list, but then you're going to fall off in a week and it's going to cost you $200,000. And if you really need that for your ego, then I guess go spend the two hundred grand. but um, for mo- most people don't have that to spend. So, But the cool thing is there's a better way to do it that's way cheaper than $200,000, and that's write a book that really resonates with people. Yeah. By the way, I thought the number was like forty or fifty thousand. So two hundred. Wow. Okay. Yeah. So, and that and that also makes sense. You know that the, let the content sort of speak for itself. So it, it's it, it it's not that it speaks for itself. It's that um it's that it's so good that the people who who want what you're offering in the book will uh, tell other people that they meet who also want it. You know what I'm saying? Like, right. there's a reason that that. Uh, that great books spread and it's because they help people. And I mean, people spread, uh, tell, tell people about other things because it makes them look good. Right? So if you write a book that helps someone lose 50 pounds, that makes them look good. And if they can share that information with someone else, that makes it first of all, losing 50 pounds makes uh, 50 pounds makes them look good. And sharing the information with somebody else makes them look good to their friend. So that book, they're going to talk about that book to everyone because it makes them look good for losing weight and it makes them look smart for knowing which book to use or to, re- you know, to recommend. So that's how you get people to spread uh, information is uh, give them a benefit and make them look good doing it. Yeah, people always want to be in the know, right? Mm-hmm. Right, exactly. Yeah. So, uh, okay. Well, now I want to shift again a little bit here. So you, you're a father now. Mm-hmm. Right. And uh, what what was it? I mean, what's the transition like like for somebody who you know is the life of Rattire, you know, basically, and right. the stories that you've written about to then ending up in a, a serious relationship and now being a father, especially now that you know you're telling me that you didn't have a great childhood either. Like, there's, there's your whole mindset must have shifted in a lot of ways. Yeah. It, so uh, here's the thing with me, though. I I knew I wanted a family and a wife and kids, and I did the work necessary to have that before I got married and had kids. I didn't wait until uh, afterwards. So, like, um, <clears throat> I started uh, psychoanalysis. I think when I was uh, 36. Yeah, because I'm about. To, I'm finishing this month, uh, and I spent four years doing it. So when I was 36. Um, I might have been 35, 35, 36. Uh, and uh, I spent four days a week um, for 40 years, basically, uh, really diving into my issues, figuring them out, and then figuring out ways to solve them. Um, and it's not like, you know, I was a crazy person. Like, I didn't have a whole lot of problems. I just had a few emotional barriers. I was, you know, not very good at being vulnerable. Not very good at being, uh, you know, trusting and being intimate with people that I was close to and that I loved, um, you know, et cetera, et cetera. There were maybe about five to ten issues I had to really dive into and I had to really sort of work on fixing. And I did, you know. I mean, like, I was, I, I knew I wanted kids for a long, and a family for a long time. And I knew I was going to have to sort of change uh, my ways, I guess. But like I didn't worry about that because in my twenties and early thirties, like I knew I as a man you have plenty of time. I mean, biologically speaking, right? Like I, I have way more time than women do uh, to uh, to get this my shit figured out, and um, and so it was like, all right, you know, like I'll um, you know I'll I'll figure it out when I feel like it. And then early thirties, I started to get really tired of drinking and hooking up in that lifestyle. And about thirty three, thirty four, it was like, ugh, no more. I was like beyond fed up with it. And then uh, when I I moved to Austin, I kind of started dating a little bit. And I realized I had a couple of decent relationships with good women, but they weren't really going the way I wanted. And I realized, all right, so I fixed everything in my life. I have a lot of money. I'm in great shape. I have great women around, great friends, but uh, I don't have the relationships I want. So the problem must be me. So I, I started, you know, I tried a bunch of different therapeutic modalities Everything from cognitive behavioral therapy to meditation to whatever. I found that psychoanalysis plus meditation worked best for me. 
And um, I started down that path and uh, uh, I made a lot of changes in my life. Um, but I, I could only make those changes once I'd, I was sort of ready to make those changes. And then about halfway through psychoanalysis, I met, um, I kind of got to a really good point and I met uh, my uh, now wife, then uh, girlfriend. We started dating for a while. Um, we got pregnant a little bit earlier than, than we probably planned, but it wasn't like uh, some major like out of nowhere thing. And by then I was like ready, for, you know, I was, I was ready. And I, I, you know, I turned 40 this year. So like having a kid and a wife now is not a problem. If I had done this 10 years ago, I think it would have been a disaster. I know it would have been a disaster. It would have been a terrible mistake because I wouldn't have been ready at all. And I would have been a terrible father and all this sort of stuff. But like now, now that I'm ready, once I was ready, then I went out and found uh, the right woman and then connected with her. And now I have a kid and it's, it's, it's not perfect, but it's really very enjoyable. It's kind of funny, man. My, I have the most boring life now, but I love it. Like a, a, a crazy night out for my wife and I is like, we'll go to a wine tasting or something, you know, and, and be back home by nine. Like that's like a big Whoa. night for us. I, I know, I know, right? Uh, we'll no, go to a I'm wine saying, tasting. I'm saying, I'm saying because that's like that's almost pushing my limits because I, I right. have three kids. So yeah. <laughs> well, well, we have so we have her mom moved to Austin to help us uh, uh, raise Bishop. So that was that was the the greatest decision I ever made in my life was moving Granny down here. We got her. I got her an apartment in the building next to ours, and uh, so she doesn't live with us, but she is always there. She watches him all day. Uh, he's, you know, a great little kid. And then we have basically the live-in help almost without her living in. But it's the grandmother. And no one cares more about the, uh, a child than the grandmother, right? And so we have, like, this really great situation. I mean, my wife has her own company. I have my company. So we're both very busy. So spending 1500 bucks a month for Granny's rent was, like, the easiest decision ever. And, uh, and she loves it. And Bishop loves it. And that way, like... Bishop's not a burden at all. He's not like, oh my god, I have to watch this kid, and I'm trying to run a company. And like, if I was doing that, I think I'd be. It would be very hard. It'd be very problematic. But I kind of, my wife and I structured our lives um, so that we both have the time to run our businesses, but then we also have, but uh, and our our kid is taken care of uh, when we're not there. But then we also have huge blocks of time that are family time. And um, I don't know, dude. It just like. I just created the world that I wanted, you know, and it's, it's working out really well. No, and that's, and that's a beautiful thing. And I mean, I, I completely can resonate with that. Um, what do you think makes you a good father now? I mean, having, I mean, you obviously have learned from a bad situation. So what, what do you sort of focus on that makes you? A good well, father? so the first thing I would say is that I'm not, I don't know if I'm a good father. Uh, I'm trying to be a good father. Um, well, we'll that's see. Already, that's already you know? a step in the right direction. Right. Right. So I'm not sure if I am. I, I, I think I'm a pretty good husband. Uh, I, I'm probably a better husband than a father so far. Um, but he, here's the main thing, with I think, with being a good parent is uh, you need to provide sort of a space where your child feels unconditionally loved and accepted. And if you do that, I feel like you can screw up almost everything else as a parent and still be a really good parent. And so what I'm trying to do with me and Granny and, my, and, um, and, and uh, Veronica, my wife, is that we try to, uh, you know, Bishop's only eight months old, so there's not like a whole lot to do other than just be there with him and normal stuff you do with an eight-month-old. But what I want to do is make sure that our son feels loved and accepted, uh, but then also has the structure and the discipline um, uh, that, that a child needs. And I think... Other than that, dude, I, I don't really have any special formula formula yet or or some thing or whatever. Um, I just try to meet my son's needs uh, while still taking care of myself and my wife uh, at the same time, you know? Yeah, no, I, th I think that's a, a very valid way to put it. So, Okay, well, so we covered a lot of different topics here. The, the, the last question I always like to ask people on these interviews is... What are your top three pieces of advice for people to be more effective? And you can interpret that however you like. All right. Um, all right. So uh, I just finished um, this uh, one book that's uh, 
it's sort of a side project that I have. Me and Dr. Jeffrey Miller are doing a, sort of a man's guide to sex and dating. Um, because there's, if you, if you think about it, what, what would you hand right now to a 20 year old to teach him or a 15 year old to teach him about women and sex and dating? Like nothing exists. Nothing. So you're right. He, he and I sort of in our spare time wrote this book. Uh, and I think it's pretty good. And, but the end part of the book, the last chapter is about how to, um, take our advice and actually implement it in your life. Because like most of self improvements advice books are like, here's 20 things you should do. And then there's like, they don't ever tell you how to do them. Right. So uh, the first thing you should do if you want to be effective, I'll just run down the exactly. Uh, there's so much research and so much data out there on how to actually make change in your life. And very few people are teaching it. Very few people understand it. But here's how the process works. First, you need to understand what do you want and why do you want it. So you need a clear vision in your head of what you're trying to get to, what goal, what accomplishment, um, whatever. And also, you need to understand why you want it. Just saying, I want to be a star, you need to understand why you want to be a star. Because uh, having a goal without understanding a why is going to create a lot of sort of problems that I, I can get into if you want. But um, that's step one. Step two is then you must create a very specific, actionable plan to achieve that goal. Okay? So that doesn't mean, like, if your goal is I want to be a rock star, then your plan isn't... Um, uh, become a rock star. <laughs> like you have to, you need. Uh, it needs to be very specific. It needs to be measurable. It needs to be accountable. There need to be dates. You need to ag- actually know all the specific steps you're going to do them. What what the accomplishment looks like. What failure looks like. The specific actions you're going to take. If you know if you fail, when you're going to do them by. You need a very specific plan of action, and then you need to uh, learn. Um, you need to to test that plan. It will fail at points, and then you need to adapt the plan based off the the sort of successes and failures. So it's basically have a goal, make a specific plan, have a goal, understand why you want it, make a specific plan to carry that goal out, and then try, learn, uh, and repeat that goal uh, or that, that plan until you either reach your goal or you, in the process, a lot of people realize that their original goal it's not actually what they wanted, and they adjust the goal, which is fine too. That's what try, learn, and repeat is. Um, that's how that's how you can be effective in life in the broadest sense. Well, I, I love that. I think that that's that's really cool. to the point. So thank you. Um, okay, so where where can people? We're going to have links in the show notes, of course. But where can people find out more about you and about the new service? Right. So book in a box is just uh, that bookinabox.com. Just go there. It explains everything. There's a, a, a goofy video uh, with my um, uh, ridiculous face uh, describing all this. And then, the, you know, it's all written out there. It describes exactly how it is. If, you, if it's something that interests you, you can just fill out the form and we'll be uh, in contact very shortly. Um, I think that's pretty much it. If you, can, if you like uh, the, the, the sort of uh, sex and dating advice stuff, uh, basically I would go listen to the podcast that Dr. Miller and I do. It's called The Mating Grounds. It's going to be in the, and then that, that's going to be in the book uh, called Mate, but there's better books out there uh, that describe sort of um, how to accomplish things. Uh, what, what, do you, are, what do you use? Um, like, what's your best go-to source for, um, for, for what we were talking about? Because, like, I've seen a lot of different things out there, and a lot of people who are good in this space recommend a lot of different things. So for someone to be effective, to understand how to, uh, you know, like, find their goal or figure out what their goal is, set their plan and then uh, test it and learn from it and change it. What's your go-to source? Okay. If you say your own book, that's a little bit cheating, but no, if you really not. think it is, then say it. No, absolutely not. And it's funny. Actually. No, the reason I'm laughing is because nobody's ever asked me that question on the podcast. So, uh, well, let's see. Okay. Well, the first thing, I, I, a big one for me and a big thing of what I do is helping people deal with overwhelm and sort of get out from under the overwhelm and let their in a lot of cases, their true genius sort of show through. So a big one for me is something I call creating the external brain, which is really about note-taking, but like to an obsessive extreme level. And I'm a big fan of using Evernote, and I try to push people to really unload all of their ideas and just do a total brain dump. And the biggest thing is to learn to not judge your ideas, not pause on them, not think about them too much because you're going to end up knocking them down. It's, there's a lot of self-doubt that goes into there. So... Just get it out of your head because I believe that ideas need flow. Um, so that that's the first one, which is a big one for me because I really want people to be able to create the headspace to use their brains the way that they want. Right. 
So, okay, so that's one. Um, another one is in terms of communication. And I think that email is a really good sort of simile for this, but it, it translates to other things. And my process for telling people how to deal with email is basically you have three Ds, which is uh, you can delete it because it's not relevant, doesn't require response. You can deal with it because you can actually deal with it right now. And if it, you can, you should. Uh, or you should defer it to a time that you can more effectively deal with it. And that's a methodology that I try to get people to apply to other things in their life, whether it's somebody asking you to do an interview or somebody asking you to do use your, your time for something or uh, take away time for something else that you'd like to do. So that's sort of this metric for how you approach things. Um, and then the third one is something I call creating the manual of you, which is that every one of us goes through various processes on a regular basis. And a lot of it is just sort of on autopilot which is good, but it's also bad because it removes us from the process of actually identifying how we can make those, uh, those frameworks more effective. So I try to get people to stop <coughs> sometimes and look at the things that you're doing daily or even weekly and actually identify the process and see if either you can make it more efficient, uh, you can automate a lot of it, or maybe you can outsource it completely out of your life. Yeah, yeah. No, that's the second level. We talk about this in the book is is uh, once you come up with a plan of action, then then the real sort of uh, advanced technique is to turn that into habits, turn that plan of action into habits. And most people, they have a whole set of habits in their life they don't really recognize or understand are there, and it creates results that they either don't want or aren't optimal, but they don't ever think about that, yeah. Yeah, exactly. So, uh, well, and thank you for asking that, because again, I've never been asked the question on my own podcast, so thank you. <laughs> <laughs> um, so Tucker, there you go. This, yeah, this has been awesome. I, we covered a really, really wide range of topics and, uh, I'm looking forward to seeing you at the mastermind talks. Yeah, definitely. So it'll be nice to meet you, man. Hello everyone. Thanks for listening to the less doing podcast. If you want to find out more information of the show, we would love to hear from you. You can go to lessdoing.com where you can look at Ari's blog, see the show notes for this episode and also look at all the other episodes before this. If you want to send us a voicemail, we'd love to hear from you and we'll play it on the show. You go to lessdoing.com, click on contact and look on the right side of the page where you'll see a, a send voicemail button. Click on that and go ahead and record an audio message for us. You can also get in touch with us on Twitter. Ari's Twitter handle is at Ari Mizell, and mine is at Felix Bird. We hope you enjoyed this podcast. See you next time.